Well, I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Uh, last week, Shannon and I were celebrating our 18th wedding anniversary. We were in Nashville, and uh, I think Ryan mentioned at some point during the morning the stuffed plush taco that we have taken with us on a few trips. Uh, my middle daughter, Abigail, gave this taco to me uh, a year ago before we went to Athens, Greece, and I took it to Athens. The taco went to the Parthenon. It went to Mars Hill. I mean, it went everywhere, and we would take a picture. So we took it to Nashville. It went to the Grand Ole Opry. It went to the Country Music Hall of Fame, all these different places, and I uh, had a great time, and then I left it in an Uber. I lost it. And so uh, I've been just grieving the latter part of this week. I actually ordered an identical taco uh, off of Amazon. I found the exact same one. So it's coming uh, this week. But our taco is riding around Nashville somewhere in an Uber. I heard he has joined a Tejano band. So uh, we are... We are missing him, but we're glad to be back. I'm glad to be back with y'all this morning. We're going to continue our series on heaven and hell. That story about the taco had nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. It just was a a story. Um, But we're going to continue our series on heaven and hell. As I was thinking this week about the topic, one of the things that I was thinking about was uh, that some of us are perfectionists, right? And some of us are not. Some of us need everything to be just so. Some of us allow a certain amount of chaos into our lives. Uh, This is a photo, actually, from a few years ago of my desk. Now, I I was not in the office much this week, so I couldn't get really a current photo. But this is pretty typical. This is what it looks like. I don't know how how well you can see that from where you are, but books and papers and all kinds of things are stacked on my desk on a regular basis. I try to go through maybe once every couple of weeks, and I clean it all off, and then within another week or so, everything is back on the desk. Now, I've had friends come in my office who are a lot more like they need things neat and tidy. Uh, my wife also has walked in and, and people sometimes kind of go, whoa, like how do you think in here? How do you process? Uh, and my response is this is all a part of my thinking process. I, I sort of need a little bit of chaos. Now, I wanted to take a contrasting picture of Chris Thompson's desk, my coworker, uh, because Chris's desk is usually perfectly clean. Uh, Chris and I actually were roommates in college, and I remember walking into his room sometimes and seeing his room and his desk, and I thought, where is all the stuff? Like, I don't understand where you keep it all. Because for me, like, you know, all the stuff is right there. Like, if I need something, it's stacked on my desk. And so I've had friends go, like, how do you think in there? And I, I kind of go, well, how do, how do you think when there's nothing? Like, there's nothing there. I need resources to help me think, so I keep them all there, right? Now, for some of you, and this is deeply troubling, right? This really bothers you uh, to see a picture like this because you want things to be just so. You may be more perfectionistic. If I walked up here this morning and my buttons were kind of skewed, you know, I had one off in the wrong spot, you might not be able to think. You might not be able to focus on what I am saying. Or if I had a shoelace untied, you like your world to be just so. Others of you allow a little bit of chaos, right? But the reality is whichever side of that divide you fall in, I'm going to guess that at some point in your life, you have looked around you at the world and thought, I wish things were better than they are, right? I wish that things were not quite like they are right now, right? So maybe you look around, you, you, you open the news and you read of crime and poverty and war and racial strife and political strife. And you say, man, that's just not right. I wish the world was different. I wish things weren't like this. Right? Or maybe it is a little closer to home. You look at your own life. You wake up and you look in the mirror and you go, 
I wish things were better in there. Right? I wish I looked differently. I wish I felt differently. Or you look at your own family and you say, man, there's conflict and there's strife between me and my spouse or my kids and I, and I wish things were better. Right? Whether you're a perfectionist or not, the reality is at some point you've looked at the world and you have had this thought, it isn't like it ought to be. It isn't like it ought to be. And in fact, if you have had that thought, that's a thought that's very consistent with the story of the Scripture. Right? Because what we see in the Bible is God created a world in which everything was as it was supposed to be. There was perfect harmony between humanity and God, between husband and wife, between the animal kingdom and human beings. The world worked like it was supposed to work until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And really all of us then followed suit. And ever since Genesis 3, the world has not been like it's supposed to be. So every time we have that thought, look, it's not like it it should be. I struggle. I'm frustrated. I want to fix things. Every time you have that thought, I think what we are longing for is a return to what God made the world to be. And the story of the scripture then is the story of God redeeming his people and redeeming his world to be what it ought to be. So that when we think of the hope of heaven, when we have that longing, we say, I want heaven. What we are longing for is for the world to be fixed and made right. So that this morning when we say, what is heaven like? We are going to be talking about that reality that the scripture promises for those who know Jesus Christ, that the day is coming when we won't look around anymore and say, it's not right. right? But we will look around and say, absolutely, God has put everything like it's supposed to be. And it is in that day then that we place all of our hope for perfection and joy and life. Because the realities of this world and the relationships of this world and our bodies in this world and our surroundings in this world, those realities will always disappoint because they are broken by sin. Now, <laughs> as, we, as we dive into the topic of heaven, I, I want to uh, make one point before we dive in this morning about the nature of the way the New Testament presents heaven. Okay, because as you look at the New Testament, it's interesting, there are really what you might call two stages of heaven. Now, I don't mean two levels of heaven. Here's what I mean. There's a heaven that exists right now. All right, we might call that the present heaven. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what happens when we die. That's kind of where we started this process. That would be the present heaven. So Philippians chapter 1, when Paul was writing from prison and realized that he might be martyred for his faith, he actually said, look, I am torn. I'm torn right now because I know it'd be better for you, my readers, if I stayed here and I continued to minister. But he said, I also know that it would be much better for me to depart. He says to depart and be with Christ. Paul had the expectation that upon death, he would go be with Jesus. And we see that in Luke chapter 16. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, that's part of what we talked about, that at death, our body and spirit separates, and our spirit goes to be with Jesus while our body stays in the ground, right? That's the present heaven. It's a place where we're with Jesus. We're not in pain. We're in a good place. But ultimately, the scripture says what we're waiting for in that place is the future heaven, 
All right, the future heaven is described in passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation chapter 21. What is the future heaven? Well, the future heaven is actually where heaven comes here. All right, so this is what we're going to talk about most of the morning is that when we long for perfection, ultimately the message of the gospel is not that our hope is found in dying and going to heaven, but actually our hope is found in Jesus coming back and bringing heaven here. Right, so that when we go, for example, to the mountains or to the ocean and we say, this is so beautiful, we don't have to say, man, but when I go to heaven, I'm just going to be sitting on a cloud and there's no mountains, there's no oceans, there's no cities, there's no body. No, actually, the scripture says all of that will be in the future heaven because heaven will come to earth. The new Jerusalem comes here. So we will have perfect bodies on a perfect earth. And the mountains and the ocean and the sky will be like they were meant to be. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. John wrote this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I love that last sentence. John is so enraptured by what God is saying that that he has to go, hey, grab a pen, buddy. Write this stuff down. Okay, because this matters. It's trustworthy. It's true. Here's what's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, heaven comes to earth. So that when we talk about hope, here's what the testimony of the scripture is. Our hope is not found in trying to fix our lives right now. It doesn't mean that we should just give up, right? We still exercise and eat broccoli even though we're going to die. But the reality is we also live in a tension that until Jesus returns, the world is not going to be like it was designed to be. Okay, so we place our hope in the coming kingdom of God and we proclaim that that's where hope is found. So if you feel disillusioned and frustrated with the world, hope is found in Jesus. That's what we'll see as we look at heaven this morning. I want to draw out just a few concepts about heaven from the New Testament. What is it like? First thing I want to point out is this. In heaven, we will have perfect bodies. Now, when I say that, I think there are a few things that come to our minds. Because I think most of us, if we're honest, at some point, we've looked in the mirror and we've thought, I would like something about my body to be different, right? I'd like to be taller. I'd like to be slimmer. I'd like to be stronger. I would like to just be better looking at better hair, whatever it may be. You've probably looked in the mirror and thought, I would like to look differently. And for some of us, we might think, okay, perfect bodies. When I get to heaven, man, I am choosing Brad Pitt, right? That's who I want to look like. Okay, now, now the reality is that's not what the scripture promises when it talks about perfect bodies. Okay? Instead, what it means is we will inhabit a resurrected body that will work as it's supposed to work. Where we won't get sick anymore. Where we won't carry diseases around anymore. 
where the way that we eat and drink nourishes us and never makes us ill, where we won't die, we won't feel pain. I think what we will experience when heaven comes to earth and we are resurrected is we will see our bodies and we'll go, this is how it was supposed to be. This is what I was supposed to feel like, right? We are, all of us, from the time we're born, beginning to die, right? Earlier this week, I ran into a woman that I had not seen for some time, and we began to talk, and I said, hey, how are you doing? How's your family? She says, I'm great. She says, my biggest decision these days is whether or not to keep coloring my hair, right? Middle-aged woman, maybe a few years older than I am, and uh, I didn't really have any advice for her. I just kind of listened, you know, to what she was saying. And uh, she said, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to decide. Should I keep coloring it dark or should I just let it go gray? And she looked at me and she goes, I mean, if you can let yours go gray, then surely I can, right? And I love, like, I'm the point of reference here in this conversation. It's like, if you can walk around looking like that, then surely I can get away with it too, right? And as we talked, what came into my mind was just the reality that uh, we don't like aging, do we? We fight it. We fight the reality often that our bodies are in decay. You don't notice it when you're 15 or 20 or maybe 25, but somewhere around 30, 35, 40, 45, it starts to become apparent, right? Things don't move as quickly as they once moved. Things don't look as sharp, no matter how much work you put into it, as they once did. And we begin to decay and we recognize that the moment is coming unless Jesus comes first when we will lie in the grave. Right, but the hope of eternal life is ultimately resurrection. Right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the most powerful passage in the New Testament on the resurrection of the body. Paul says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He says, what is sown is perishable. He uses the the body, he uses the illustration of like a seed. You sow a seed in the ground and then it comes to life. The seed dies and then something new emerges. He says, what is sown is perishable. That is, it's passing away. It's going to die. What is raised is imperishable. It won't die. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, when he says spiritual body, he doesn't mean it's not a real body. Instead, what he means is it is a body that is constantly connected to the life-giving spirit of God. It never will die again. It never will be separated from God again. That separation that happens at death will be reversed and the resurrection of the body will happen. Now I'm belaboring this point and here's why. Because all too often when we talk about heaven and when we sing about heaven, we talk and sing about it as if the hope of heaven means we will be disembodied. How many movies have you seen where heaven is spirits floating in the sky without bodies? How many songs have we sung where that idea is prevalent? I ran across a Christian song a few years ago that was on the radio. It had these words, I'm a soul with a body of my own. And there's a time I'll lay this body down. When I go, don't mourn for what is lost, but rejoice for what is found. And if the devil wants to come for me, I will tell him to his face, you can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. In the heavens, I will be singing songs of hallelujah. You can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. No, you cannot have my soul, right? Beautiful lyrics. It sounds very powerful. The reality is it's not quite a biblical conception of what heaven is. 
right? Because the, the devil doesn't own us body or soul if we know Jesus. Right? This was so critical in the early days of the church because there was a heresy. It was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that the body was evil and the spirit was good. And the best thing you could do was try to escape the body and just be a spirit. Right? So the Apostles' Creed, some of you probably grew up quoting the Apostles' Creed, especially if you went to a more liturgical church, one of the few creeds that all Christians really ascribe to directly affirms, we believe in the resurrection of the body unto eternal life. The resurrection of the flesh. That is the hope of eternal life. Right? Philippians chapter 3, Paul also says this, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so when we think about the resurrection body, our resurrected bodies, I think the best way to think about it is by thinking about what was Jesus' resurrected body like? As you look at Luke 24, one of the great resurrection passages in the New Testament, what you see is Jesus' body had continuity and discontinuity. There was some continuity with his previous body, and there was discontinuity. So when people saw him, generally they recognized him. He looked like Jesus. They often would go, oh, that's Jesus. There he is. There's the Lord. He looked like Jesus, right? But there was also some discontinuity. One of the things that Jesus does in Luke 24, and he he does this a few times actually in Luke, is the disciples are huddled behind a locked door. They're hiding because they're afraid, and Jesus just pops in behind the locked door and goes, peace be with you, right? And everybody just like freaks out. I mean, it says they're just, they're, they're terrified. And I always read that and I'm like, I think Jesus loved doing that because it was something that he could do with a resurrected body that his body previously could not do. There were abilities it had that it didn't have previously, right? And he, he does this at least, I think, three times in the gospel narratives and just shows up. Right? But there is continuity as well. Same passage, Luke 24, after he appears and they're, they're amazed and they're kind of startled and they're freaked out. He, he stands there for a minute and he goes, does, does anybody like have a snack? Like, does anybody have something that I can eat? And so they tear off a piece of broiled fish and he eats it, right? Only somebody with a real body can eat fish, right? As you walk through the gospels, this is also a point of continuity. Jesus actually like, creates fish. He finds fish. He fishes a lot. He loved fish. His resurrected body still loved fish. He didn't need it to live. He ate it because there was pleasure in eating something that God had made. Right? So you see continuity and discontinuity. When we talk about the resurrected body, what we're talking about is that we will have a body. I think that you will still look at your mom, your grandfather, your friend, your brother, whoever, and say, I know him but that's the best him. That's what he was supposed to look like. That's what she was supposed to look like. That's how I was supposed to function. So a huge part of the hope of heaven is a perfect resurrected body. Secondly, perfect relationships. Perfect relationships. For, I think, all of us, relationships are often fraught with difficulty. Even the best relationships in this world right now are fraught with difficulty, right? Because we have a hard time communicating and understanding one another. We have a hard time being kind to one another. We struggle with selfishness and pride. For a lot of us, the first time we really were aware, I think, of our relational deficiencies was probably maybe high school or college when we began to date, 
right? And so all of a sudden we are interacting with someone of the opposite sex that we have a hard time understanding. How are they thinking? Why is it that I say things and they're misunderstood? Why is it that I do things that I think are the right thing to do and they turn out to be the wrong thing to do? One of my early uh, faux pas in my relationship with Shannon, uh, we'd probably been dating, I don't know, four, five, six weeks, something like that. And we were at a coffee shop. We're just kind of talking. And I thought, you know, this would be a good time to initiate just some kind of physical contact, you know? So I just kind of did the whole deal here, you know, and put my arm around her like that. And she sat there for a couple minutes and we talked and then she goes, uh, your arm's around me. And I said, yes. And she said, well, you didn't actually like ask me if you could do that. It's like, oh. So I pulled my arm back away, kind of cringed and, and I thought, okay, well, can I, can I do that? And uh, <laughs> she goes, sure. So I put my arm back around her, right? She just wanted that moment, you know? But I remember having that feeling of like, I am so in the dark here. I don't understand what's happening. And what sort of transaction is taking place right now? If you've been married for a while, you know that all too often uh, the complexity just increases, doesn't it? I mean, you love your spouse, you love your kids, but often there are relational challenges. When I was in seminary, we uh, had to take a counseling class. And part of what they talked to us about were the ways in which couples interact that are unhealthy, right? So they showed us these videos. And, and one of the things about these videos that was interesting was they said, okay, what they did is they took couples and they said, okay, next time you start to argue, just hit pause and then call our camera crew. And when we get there, finish the argument. Now you hear that and you think that's ridiculous, right? Because by the time the camera crew gets there, they're going to calm down. They won't have anything to say. Absolutely not. Like as soon as the camera started up, they're like, continue. And the people just continued, right? They just started arguing just like they would have. And here's why, because they had these ingrained patterns. And they said there were these four patterns that people engage in. One was withdrawal. That is, you say, look, I really would like it if you would pick that towel up off the floor and you go, whatever, and you get in your car and you drive away, right? Like that's withdrawing. That's an extreme illustration. But maybe you just shut down. You say, I want to talk about that. And you leave the room. Or escalation, right? Your spouse says, look, I'd love for you to clean up the dishes. And something in you rebels against that. And you go, well, aren't you little Miss Perfect? Why didn't your mom clean the dishes, right? And you just escalate it to this sort of high level immediately. There's another one called negative interpretation, right? Negative interpretation is this deal where, you, where someone says, hey, you're a little bit late coming home from work. You say, what are you saying? You think I don't want to be here? You think I'm doing something I shouldn't, right? And all of a sudden you've interpreted a very innocuous comment in the worst way possible, right? And then the last one was invalidation. That is, you say, hey, it really hurt my feelings that you took a picture of me sleeping and put it on Instagram, right? That kind of hurt my my heart. And you're like, hey, you know, relax. People think it's funny. It's no big deal, right? And you just sort of shut down their feelings. Okay, now I share that to make this point. All of those patterns are rooted in sinful hearts, right? I'm proud. I don't want to admit I'm wrong, right? If you're a college student, this may have happened with your roommates. If you're married, this happens with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers. We lash out, we defend. Why? Because we are broken due to sin. And the hope of heaven is not just a perfect body, but actually that we will relate to one another as we were meant to relate to one another. You think about when God first created Adam and Eve, and it says they were naked and unashamed, right? That's not just physically unashamed and naked, although it was, but it's also spiritually, emotionally, they were connected and there was no shame, there was no pride, there was no hiding because there was no sin. 
right? And what we see is that ultimately part of the hope of heaven is perfect relationships with God and perfect relationships with others, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In other words, we'll have a relationship with God where we know him and he knows us. No hiding like Adam and Eve did after they sinned. No distance, but we will know him fully and be fully known. We also see in Isaiah, Isaiah describes perfect relationships between human beings. Isaiah chapter 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for who? For all peoples, that is Jew, that is Gentile, all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. In the scripture, one of the primary pieces of evidence that I'm in a good relationship with somebody is I can sit down at the table and eat with you. And what we see in Isaiah is God sets a table and he says, you know who I want to come? Everybody who knows me from Europe, from Africa, from South America, from North America, from everywhere in the world. I want people to come from Asia, every place in the world, countries that don't get along will sit eye to eye across from each other at the banquet. Isaiah chapter 56, for my house will be called a house of prayer. For who? For all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. In other words, God says, it's not enough just that I redeem the nation of Israel. I want to redeem the earth and bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship before the throne of God and to sit at a feast together with unhindered, perfect, relationships so that when our relationships right now frustrate and disappoint. Yes, we pray. Yes, we invest in them. Yes, we bring the truth of God's word into our relationships. But we ultimately have to recognize relationships, just like our bodies right now, our relationships will disappoint. They will never be the perfect relationship that we want. And so we place our hope in Jesus' kingdom. So perfect bodies, perfect relationships. Thirdly, perfect surroundings. In heaven, we'll have perfect surroundings. Uh, It's interesting, uh, this past couple of weeks, obviously, it's been kind of cold around here. And I'm going to guess that some of you in the midst of the cold have kind of said, this is too cold, right? It's it's too much. Uh, 20 degrees is too cold, right? I wanted it a little cooler. I didn't want to freeze. I wanted the kids to go back to school and they went back and then they came back home because it was too cold, right? You're like, this cursed earth is broken because of that, okay? So you go, it's too cold, but here's what's gonna happen. July's gonna roll around and you're gonna say, it's too hot, right? The kids don't wanna go outside. All they wanna do is sit inside. I don't wanna go anywhere. When our kids were real little, sometimes in the summer, we'd say, go play outside and we would send them outside and they would walk outside and then they would turn around and they would stand at the back window like this with their face there, just going, let us in. Please let us in. We don't wanna be out here, you know? But we wanted them out there and not in here, right? It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too rainy, it's too dry, right? We are absolutely at the mercy of the weather. 
and it doesn't work like it's supposed to. When we were flying back from Nashville on Wednesday, we couldn't get out of the Nashville airport for like 10 or 12 hours because some 800 flights into Houston were canceled because of, you know, like half an inch of snow. And I thought, how long have we been flying? I mean, like 125 years people have been doing this. And yet one snowstorm shuts it all down. Despite all of our technology, all of our intelligence, we are at the mercy of the weather. And it doesn't work like it's supposed to. There are hurricanes and there are droughts. There are blizzards and then there are heat waves where people die. And what we see is all of that is a result of sin. Remember, part of the curse in Genesis 3 was that the ground itself wouldn't produce like it's supposed to produce. Romans 8, Paul talks about it this way, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The creation itself is waiting the day when Jesus returns to make everything right. Creation doesn't work like it's supposed to. In Isaiah, when Isaiah describes the new creation, Isaiah chapter 11, he says this, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. I don't know if any of you want to try that. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth will know God so well, it would, the glory of God will be like the water in the sea. So much glory, so much perfection, you can't even imagine. Harmony between the animals, harmony among humanity. In 2003, I read a news story about a man in Harlem, New York. His name was Antoine Yates. And Antoine Yates, some of you may remember this story, he kept a Bengal tiger in his fifth floor apartment in Harlem. Uh, He got it when it was a cub, and then he just slowly fed it, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, to the point that basically his strategy by the end was kind of open the door and toss meat in at the tiger, and then back away. He also had a full-size live alligator in the same apartment. And uh, he was kind of creating this little zoo in there. I thought about that when I was reading Isaiah 11. And here's where it all went wrong for him. Here's what happened. Uh, He also got a house cat for some reason. Uh, He took in a cat and he was in there one day and the tiger, whose name was Ming, spotted the cat and uh, lunged to go and eat the cat. And uh, so Antoine, in in, in an effort to save the cat, stepped in between a 500-pound Bengal tiger and a little cat, right? Absolutely a stupid idea. If a tiger wants to eat my cat, have at it, right? Well, he got bit. The, The thing got his leg. He managed to get out. He went to the hospital. At first, he told them it was a dog bite, but they did not believe that, um, apparently. And they sent a SWAT team in, and they tranquilized the tiger, and they pulled it out. And later, they asked Antoine Yates, like, why'd you do this? What on earth motivated you to keep a Bengal tiger in your apartment? 
And he said, I wanted to create the Garden of Eden. Right? And I read that and I thought, man, but you failed really badly. Okay? Why? Because you're not God. The world is broken. There's hostility in the creation itself. And Isaiah says, when Jesus returns, all of that will be wiped away. Perfect surroundings. So that when you go to the ocean, to the mountains, to the forests, I think we'll look again and say, this is what it was supposed to be like. This is what it was supposed to be like and how it was supposed to work. Perfect surroundings. And then lastly in heaven, we'll have perfect occupations, perfect work. Some of you have jobs that you like. Some of you have jobs you don't like. Most of us probably have jobs we like on some days and jobs we don't like on other days. I think I've told y'all before, my, my very worst job of all time was working, I was working in a law firm and it wasn't the law firm per se that was bad. It was the job they gave me one summer. My job was to go to the file room, and any files that were older than about 1980, I had to take them, take the paper files, and take them out of their folder and, and shred them. And uh, they had a giant file room, I mean, huge file room. There were thousands of files. Eight hours a day, five days a week, for 12 weeks, I sat next to a shredder and went, Zzzz, and that was it. That was the whole job, right? It was like a mild form of hell on earth for me. I just... It was, it was terrible. I just wanted to get up. I wanted to leave. My friends thought I had a good job because it was an office job. It's like, it, this is not a good job. All I'm doing is shredding, right? For many of you, that may be your experience at work. Maybe not literally that, but you say, man, I don't like what I, what I do. Or I like what I do sometimes, but man, I really wish I could get rid of the, the bad things about what I do, the frustrating things, the boring things. What we see is that ultimately, you know, when we get to the new creation, there are perfect occupations where we are serving God forever as we're designed. You know, a lot of people think that prior to the fall in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve didn't have jobs, right? That work did not exist because part of the curse was that it would be with toil that the the plants would grow. But actually, when you read the passages carefully, Adam and Eve had jobs, prior to the fall. They were meant to cultivate the Garden of Eden. They were meant to care for the animals. They had jobs to serve God. It's just that they were fulfilling jobs, where things went as they were supposed to go. And what we see in the book of Revelation is that here's our primary job. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Revelation chapter 22 His bondservants will serve him, and they will reign forever and ever. We'll serve the king, and we'll reign with the king. Perfect occupations. We'll never get to the end of a workday and say, boy, that was a waste of time. What did I get done? Because we will be doing what we were designed to do, serving the king as he has called us to serve him. So perfect bodies, perfect relationships, perfect surroundings, perfect occupations, everything as it's supposed to be. So when we have those feelings of, man, this is just not like it's supposed to be, here's what we do. First, place all your hope in the kingdom of God. 
place all your hope in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be clear. What I'm not saying is this, that you just abandon everybody on earth and just go cloister up and say, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. And here's why. Because what we're actually called to be are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. That is, I go into the world and I reflect the character of God through kindness, through truthfulness, through proclaiming the gospel itself, right? So I go into the world as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Why? So that others can see that there is hope on the way, that heaven is on the way. We act as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying, though, when I say place your hope in the kingdom of God. First and foremost, if you don't know Jesus... The hope of eternal life is for those who have trusted that Jesus died for their sin and rose again. That's how we know we have eternal life. If you have not done that this morning, that's the first step. But for those who know Jesus, what does it mean? It means this, that I do not look for my joy and my satisfaction and my real life in the broken things of this world. Because if I do, I'm going to walk through life bitter and frustrated. Because I think all too often, here's what happens is we single out a relationship or a job or an area of our life and we say, if I can get that right, I will be happy. And it's never what we want it to be, is it? There's so little we control. And so our hearts become bitter. And the testimony of Scripture is if you're looking for perfection, You look to the kingdom of God and meanwhile you respond to the brokenness of this world with love and truth and the proclamation of the gospel. So we go into the world and we share the good news. Heaven is coming. And with open arms, Jesus says, all who trust in me, anybody who trusts in me can be a part of the world that's coming. That's where our hope is found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, when heaven comes to earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for this time to worship you and to hear from your word. We thank you most of all for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that he died for our sin and that he rose again. And just as he rose again, we look forward to the day of our own resurrection when we will live forever in your presence and we will see the glory of God and the knowledge of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Father, we pray that in the meanwhile, we would be faithful ambassadors and faithfully testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.